Hi, I'm Billy. And this is Joe. And we're now in Cinemascope, your one-stop shop for in-depth film discussion and debate. Each week, we take a different film, person, or subject and explore them until the credits roll. This week, we are discussing the work of Stanley Kubrick, owing to the fact that it's the 20th anniversary of his death this year, and that his classic films A Clockwork Orange and Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, are being released in cinemas again. So, what are we waiting for? Cue music? Roll titles? Lights, Lights, camera, and action. So, Billy, as you said uh, in the intro there, it is the 20th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's death, and his classic films are being re-released as we speak. Um, I have a bit of a confession to make to start off the programme today, which is, unfortunately... Oh, God. I'm not a Kubrick fan, um, oh. and I know you love him, so I, I think uh, the best <laughs> place to start off would be to talk why you adore him as a cinema maker. Well, that's that's a big, big question, Joe. I mean, you know, I mean, why does anybody love, you know, uh, a particular great artist's work? I mean, like, why does anybody love, you know, Da Vinci or, you know, Michelangelo or any of those? Not that I'm necessarily, you know... I say, that's ki- some big claims. There's big claims, I know. I mean, those guys have got centuries on Stanley Kubrick, you know, and their work has, you know, has proven it, it to survive the test of time. But, and Kubrick's only had, you know, it's only been 20 years since he died. So that's, you know, it's a big claim to stake. But at the same time, I would be lying if I said, you know, I didn't think his work was, you know, some of the most important uh, of in, in the medium of film of the, you know, last hundred years. You know, I think it is. And I think it, uh, I think like, you know, you know, what people say about great art is that it remains, you know, it stands the test of time. It remains and it still talks to you about, you know, your, the time and place it was made. And also it tells you something about that time and also about the current, the present. So, um, and I think Kubrick's work does, you know, can be argued for those merits. Okay, so you're coming at it from more of an influential point of view and the influence that he's had on cinema as a whole. True, but at the same time, you know, despite the fact that he is an incredibly influential filmmaker, I also, I do feel, a, a you know, a personal, a personal connection with his films. I don't just look at them objectively and think, wow, you know, this is... You know, this is just great work, art, uh, artwork that you can just like admire from a, you know, I, I have a deep personal affection for them r- rather than just, you know, respect and admiration. I have mm. an affection for many of his films, you know, because I've, you know, I've established a rapport with them uh, over the over the many times that I've watched them. Which is interesting because a, a big thing that is often thrown at him from people like myself who are in the anti-Kubrick cr- crowd um, is the there's a quote by Stephen King who obviously famously hated Kubrick's version of The Shining, mm. who said that he's a filmmaker who doesn't have a heart, and I I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but I do find his films very hard to kind of emotionally become attached to. Like I think they're beautiful looking in their cinematography. Like I'm never gonna attack Barry Lyndon for having shot everything by candlelight almost, and it looks beautiful. But at the same time, I don't find, I find his characters are more um, just characters or plot pieces for him to move so that he can get to the next good bit of visual. Mm. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's something that I've, I've heard before in relation to Kubrick. I mean, it's interesting, interesting that you bring up Barry Lyndon because that's what, I, you know, if somebody was to ask me, you know, what's, what's their favourite Kubrick film, I would say Barry Lyndon because I think... Um, you know, whilst, whilst it is beautiful, and whilst you can argue that, um, you know, the character of Barry Lyndon, Ryan O'Neill, uh, who plays him, is just, you know, is, is, is a vehicle for the uh, 
for the for the for the director to to you know launch another frame, you know, which is absolutely painterly and beautiful, and it's just another, it's just, it's just a device, an object, as you say, a piece to move around a chessboard. Or obviously, Kubrick loved chess. Uh, I I still disagree. I think Kubrick, you know, on the subject of his act, loved his actors. I think he was uh, he wasn't he was a very formal director, incredibly formal, but he was still he loved. Um, you know, um, a lot of the most famous moments in Kubrick films are impro- improvisations. I mean, Malcolm McDowell's singing in the rain sequence in Clockwork Orange was complete improv. You know, it was literally uh, they were they were hanging around. They were going to do the uh, the scene where the Drugs, you know, um, invade the home of the uh, Patrick McGee, the writer, and his wife, and they didn't know how really how to shoot what they wanted to shoot to match the tone of what they've been doing already. And Kubrick just w- walked up to McDowell and asked him if he could dance. And then he just w- just launched straight into scene in, a little scene in the rain routine. And Kubrick in, you know, drove straight back to his house and bought, spent 10 grand on the rights to scene in the rain. He's like, <laughs> I know what we're going to do now. And, you know, in The Shining, again, you know, Jack Nicholson's Here's Johnny, you know, was a complete improv and it was like it, it ad lib and it just went in it was kept in the film. So and those are some of the most iconic moments. I mean and if you look at Doctor Strange Love and Full Metal Jacket, you know, Ali Ermi's sergeant and Peter Sellers is, you know, all three of the characters that Sellers plays in Doctor Strange of that virtually mo- most of that is improv. So I think Kubrick was incredibly formal and uh, and he could you know, he would he could um you know, he, I, I just think the relationship between his actors and his the actual film is so sort of like perfectly matched that you can't almost, it's, it, you can make the mistake, I think, of like thinking, oh yeah, the actors are just being moved around for the film, for sake of the film. Mm. But I also think the film is there for the sake of the actor. I think Kubrick had it both ways. Well, I think that that's true. I, I mean, more in relation to how sort of the characters then develop out of that. Because like, I think no matter how, I think no matter how much say like there are the improv moments, I do feel that the characters come across as quite one note. Mm. It's almost like a joke played ad infinitum a little bit. And maybe that's me being highly reductive of what some people would say is some of the greatest performances of all time. But I I find that, like, for example, taking The Shining with Jack Torrance and Jack Nicholson, as soon as he steps upon screen, you know he's going to go crazy. Spoiler alert, (laughs) but you know he's going to go crazy. And I don't think that Kubrick does anything to reduce that. Um, so that kind of, for me, narratively, makes it lo- a lot less tense as you go on. Mm. Some people say it makes it more tense because um, you're just waiting for him to snap. But for me, it's like we know he's going to snap at some point. So therefore, why do I care? Um, again, something I'd say, um, again, with A Clockwork Orange... I don't think you legitimately, and I know it's hard because there's so much in there and like you're not exactly supposed to care for these characters because they are almost the antagonists of their own film. However, as has been seen with a lot of like anti-heroes and also antagonists, say like someone like Tony Soprano is a key example, you can still empathise with where their journey is going even though you can completely be against what they're doing and how they're doing and who they are as a person. Mm. Well, I don't think I think the problem is is that in the in trying to in trying to do such grand scale visual work and be formal and even with that improvisation, I think he sometimes loses the human aspect of it, which I think is shown most importantly in 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I know its aims are to be this grand space opera talking about the whole of time itself and it's looking for these big themes but comparing that to something like uh, by Tartovsky, um, who I think does a great job of juggling those grand themes, that g- 
great visuals and you still feel a great connection to these human characters and empathy, mm. I don't think Kubrick nearly enough does does the same thing. Yeah. Well, Tarkovsky, yeah, famously, he made Solaris as a response to the sort of the, the clinicalness of uh, the nature of 2001 mm. as being a film about humanity rather than about humans. It's not about people, you know, 2001. It's about people, you know, the human race. It's about, a, you know, you know, noun. It's about, you know, it's a something rather than someone. And um, I, well, I agree on the f- subject of The Shining. I think, you know, Nicholson is, you know, pretty much from the first frames is you know you know where this you know who this guy is but then again i was thinking about that again and um you know you know the ending of the shining obviously no spoilers but like it implies that he's always been there and i feel like maybe i'm not defend i'm not necessarily making a defense because as you know we'll discuss later i'm not a massive fan of the shining either as a as a cubic spoiler 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 (laughs) alert but um you know it's almost like you know he's always been there he's always been that thing i mean the thing about cubic is that the um what people in terms of like People don't talk enough about the fact that he he his films often side with victims because I, I the thing is about Kubrick my bottom line with Kubrick is that if because I have a you know the films that I really love I have a I have an emotional connection to I just I can't help it I have a deep yeah. profound you know something with a film and you know, it means that I can go back and watch it again and again and not only find new things in it that are intellectually stimulating but satisfy me emotionally and the bottom line is for Kubrick is that if Kubrick was as cold and as you know supremely formal as he was which he is supremely formal but if he was as cold and as clinical as people as many many people say he was i would not go back to Solms anywhere near the you know the amount of times that i have and like in the way that i do i think you know i i disagree vehemently with the idea that mm. kubrick is an emotionless filmmaker i would defend him as an emotional filmmaker because but but it's hard with kubrick because well the two kinds of acting talk about the acting in his films they there's very rarely uh besides maybe in the earlier films, uh, middle-of-the-road Hollywood style of acting. The acting is either very neutral, i.e. in um, Gary Lockwood and Keir Dilla in 2001, you know, very inexpressive. You know, there's like the characters aren't really doing much, the actors aren't doing much. Um, they're basically just like a veneer, uh, or a blank veneer, or you have the opposite, which is the Jack Nicholson, Ali Ermey, Malcolm McDowell, uh, Peter Sellers side of things, which is... Uh, histrionic over the top which he likes both and but neither acting style creates in you a sense of real sort of like not connection but like sympathy like you can't really or or like you know just natural viewer empathy because like you're because they're such opposites they're such extremes people are very rarely one of those two things they're normally somewhere in the middle and um but kubrick never usually opted i think after maybe lolita you know, he probably never really opted for that middle ground again, you know, like he did with like Kurt Douglas and Sterling Hayden in the early films, like The Killing in Paths of Glory, but not never in films post Strange Love or 2001. I think actors usually either did one or the other. Like, and The Shining is, is, is you know, it's a, 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 the best example of that. You know, Nicholson is doing Nicholson for 120 minutes. You know, it's just, it's over the top. It's, it's Jimmy Cagney. It's, 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 it's incredibly volatile and just, you know, off the walls. Mm. And Shelley Duvall's doing the same thing, but like, you know, in her style and even like Danny Lloyd, the kid is doing the same thing. So, but I would still say that the emotion that I, and sympathy, because I do have emotion and sympathy for the characters. I don't just think of them as puppets or models for Kubrick to move around. It, but uh, the emotion that I have for them, the connection doesn't come from Kubrick. 
or it doesn't come from his directing it come or the framing it comes from what i'm seeing on screen it doesn't come from how the thing is presented to me on screen because i don't think kubrick is going for that i think what kubrick's going for and i think this goes back to his background as a still photographer for look magazine in the 40s and 50s is he's presenting it to you in the in the best way he can the most perfect you know on a technical level the best way he can he's presenting and also in an artistic fashion he's presenting it to you and then you take from it what you bring to it and i think if you look for the emotion in his films you have to look for it they are that it is there but it's not it's never in the camera work it's never in the framing or the direction it's all in what the actor the the, the minutiae of the actor's face is doing in a close-up like in barry linden with ryan o'neill or uh, leon vitale lord bullingdon in the scenes where um he's you know he's holding uh, lady london's hand you know like and then you know you know his mother who he absolutely adores and dotes on and then uh, you know on his right you have barry london who's you know his stepfather who's incredibly horrible, horrible to him beats him but on leon vitale's face in that in one scene you, shot you can see all you know this sort of despair on his face but it's never it's never given to you he never gives to you he doesn't concede to the audience kubrick which is why i think he's so you know, one of the reasons why I think he's so brilliant is that he does what he sets out to do with extraordinary authority. Like, there's such authority in his films and shots. He's going to show you how the film, how the story's going to tell you. He's going to, he, he, he's going to show you what the story is, and he's going to show you how he's going to tell it. He's going to, you know, he's going to, I'm going to tell you the story this way, and then you're going to have to, you know, you either like it or you don't like it, but I'm, that's the way I'm going to tell you. So I suppose what you're saying is it's my fault for not getting on board with him. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, like, just a little bit. Like, <laughs> well, no, no. I'm not saying like. No, I know. You know, I, you know, I, 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 yeah, I mean, his films are you know nothing. Nothing is for everybody. You know. Yeah, no, and I suppose it's just as you say. It depends what you bring to it, and if if you don't get on board with say like the histrionic, and sort of uh, almost a workmanlike acting, or you don't get on with the directing style of uh, sort of placing it in the best frame, and I suppose that's just the uh, nature of myself. And I think, me, I can't speak for anyone else who's not a big Kubrick fan, but I know for myself, I think I already kind of gravitate to films which are a bit less formally shot cinematography-wise. Like mm. another director I'm, I'm less than fussed about is Wes Anderson because of the same reason. Yeah. And again, he plays, his actors play certain styles, which is either deadpan or histrionic again i feel mm. um, more, more often than not deadpan just like yeah. yeah and i think that again i'm not too fussed about that because i think it it it, it works for them and it works for the film and it works for people who enjoy that but for myself i find it i don't know i find it um i think i just don't it doesn't it doesn't do anything for me i prefer mm. um films which give the whole gamut of emotions as such and i think doing one unless it's like specifically a comedy or specifically but when it's trying to do all all of them i don't think it necessarily works for me but that's just again that's just my personal opinion yeah sure. no, I'm, <laughs> so, I'm not gonna like so basically yeah. i'm telling you you can never win this argument <laughs> <laughs> that's just like uh, your opinion man, man. <laughs> <laughs> well well i've got uh on that front as as usually uh, we're going to throughout the episodes we'll be doing a couple of rapid fire questions um and usually uh, it'd be the time for you to do it to me. Uh, but at the same time, I think I've got to go with Kubrick and give you a couple of quick questions to see whether you can... I can uh, live up to the uh, like, you know, the, the name well, of Well, just Kubrick which you'd fan. prefer. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a kind of, think of it as like a Stanley Kubrick Rorschach test. Okay. So That's interesting. That's it. <laughs> you've got a certain amount of time on the clock. <laughs> okay. Do you know, how long do I have on the clock? Two minutes. Enough time. <laughs> okay, enough time. Depends how quick you answer them. Um, so, Billy, 
Hal 9000 or Jack Torrance? Hal 9000. Ooh. Tom Cruise or Nicole Kidman? Tom Cruise. Uh, which would be worse to actually get stuck in? The Space Gate or Shining Hotel? Space Gate. Uh, would you rather gain £70 to play Leonard Goma Pyle or <laughs> be scared constantly and put in distress by Kubrick like Shelley Duvall? Um, Shelley Duvall. I'd rather be scared. Interesting. Yeah. I'd, uh, it might bring something out of me that I'd, I never know existed, <laughs> yeah. but my hair might fall out. So that's really, that wouldn't be good. Yeah, and you might not do anything for quite a while until you get brought back for Popeye. <laughs> uh, Lolita or The Killers? The Killers? Do you mean, do you mean The Killing? So The Killing, even. The Killing, oh, yeah. I was listening to Mr. Brightside. <laughs> uh, George C. Scott or Arlie Ermey? George C. Scott. Milk or violence? Milk. I'm Spartacus or gentlemen, there's no fighting here. This is the war room. War room. And finally, probably the weirdest <laughs> of them all. Pie fight or weird mask orgy? <laughs> um, weird mask orgy because I actually know what that looks like, which sounds, which don't, oh God. don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> don't take that the wrong way, but we've actually seen the mask orgy. We haven't seen the pie fight except in the rough cuts, so. Okay. <laughs> Just to clarify to anyone who doesn't know what that is, uh, the mask orgy being eyes wide shut and yes. the pie fight being a deleted scene from Doctor Strange. <laughs> it's not just Billy's decided to reveal his fetishes. No. On no. Air. Although that could still happen. Yeah, we don't know. Oh, I'm is, so uh, scared right know, now. Bare, bare all in this episode. <laughs> just to note, we're in a very, very small booth. <laughs> <laughs> so from that, Billy, I, where, I think well, where can we go from? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. From, from that weird tangent, I, I, I think we can prove that. You're obviously a, a big Kubrick fan. Um, well, but you. as you said before, The Shining for you is his uh, film that you enjoy the least. Well, which is weird. Well, that's weird you say it because I think it was probably the film you wanted people to enjoy the most. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, he'd just come off of Barry Lyndon, you know, this great big, you know, 18th century, you know, masterpiece of a film, you know, beautifully shot. You know, he, he spent four years, you know, designing it, putting it together and filming it and um and then he his next film is based off um you know a, you know a new york times best-selling novel by stephen king you know it's like gone goes from Thackeray to king it's a very well it illustrates you know how you know how he would the, the differences between his, his subjects and how diverse his film was but at the same time yeah i think with the shining he was he was trying to make something more in the lines of spielberg or lucas he was trying to go for something that had mass appeal because he he was a director that you know despite the one who was but despite the fact that he is sort of like seen by many sort of chin stroking uh you know scholars as being this great artist which he was he also worried about a lot of things you know he worried about how much money his films were going to make he worried about how popular they were going to be he w once asked um he once said that he wanted to make a film that was that that would make as much money as star wars but would make keep keep his artistic sort of um integrity alive and i think with the shining that was sort of where he was trying to come from i think um, well, not to say that the film isn't like well made. I think it's impeccably well made. I think on all, yeah, on, I think no one would, <laughs> no one would deny that, argue that. You know, the steady, especially not the carpet designer, yeah, you know, the steady cam operator. But um, I think with all of Kubrick's films, even the weaker ones, they're all on a technical level absolutely perfect. But I think there are certain ones which are flawed from a conceptual or from a uh, you know, or maybe even from a script or story perspective, you know, uh, and I think The Shining is one of the ones which is a, I would call it a lesser film, because I think it was Kubrick making 
a film that would uh, that was you know he wanted to have it to, for it to have mass appeal. It was put out in loads of cinemas in America on Halloween. You know, it was trying to get an audience, and it won two Razzies at the time. You know, worst director and worst actress for Shelley Duvall. You know, people didn't really get it. Like a lot mm. of Kubrick films, they didn't really get it at the time of release. But since then, it's become worshipped. A lot of people see it as a classic, or well, it is a classic. But yeah, I mean, even so much so that, and this is spoilers for Ready Player One, but I don't think anyone's going to be <laughs> fighting at the door for that. But mm. they completely Spielberg loves it so much that he revisited it which kind of mm. uh, in Ready Player One with an extended sequence where they're in The Shining um, the, the Overlook Hotel yeah so yeah. I suppose that you could say it's uh, cinema eating itself again but like yeah. again after you said about like him wanting to have such popular appeal and basically the populist filmmaker mm. and takes that on board yeah. and wants to give worship to it yeah, well, also The Shining was the first Kubrick film I ever saw. I saw it on on a big screen, the extended cut, and I just and and, and even when I was I was sixteen, and even then I had no there was no real point when I was genuinely terrified. I don't because I don't think it works hundred percent on a on a horror film level. I think mm. it, I think he was trying to make the great horror film like he did do with the great science fiction film of two thousand and one, but it's hard. Uh, and I don't I don't agree with what Stephen King said about him not having a heart. I think I don't agree with that at all. But I think. He had a, his fund, his approach fundamentally didn't mesh with the kind of horror, the visceral horror that the seventies kind of had movies had brought out, like The Exorcist or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or even Jaws. You know, yeah. this is kind of these are emotional movies with visceral. You have visceral gut level reactions to, you know, like and it's down to images. It's down to the image of Reagan, you know, levitating off the bed or spewing pea mm. soup. It's about the shark biting into, you know, Robert Shaw's, you know abdomen it's all that stuff whereas in the shining although there are striking images in the shining i think it, it was really trying to have its cake and eater of being a, a visceral horror film and also being an intellectual exercise in horror yeah and uh, i mean it's no coincidence that his uh, the film that he screened everyone before you know they started shooting was a razorhead you know that was the kind of thing Which he was is, going for see i love razorhead mm. uh, i think I, I feel more emotional um about Razorhead. It's interesting you say that. So something like that. I think even in that, even though Lynch is notorious for, even though I said earlier about uh, histrionics and deadpan, mm. Lynch is known for doing this weird directing his actors in a weird way, where sometimes they're speaking in kind of off kilter or they're not pronouncing the words correctly, just to make it add to the atmosphere. Mm. But I can still get on board because I think the I think the thing that Lynch does with Razorhead and again you mentioned Jaws and I think all of that I think again it's that not losing sight of a character's trajectory mm. like um, with a Razorhead you constantly see the worry and fear on Jack Nance's face as he goes through and whatever interpretations you want to take from it I like to take from it that a Razorhead is about fatherhood mm. and the fears of that. And I think you can tell from each point if you you can know where he's going and the journey he's going on and what he's feeling. Where I think with with something like The Shining, I think that Shelley Duvall, for example, as a character, is never made to be sympathetic. Mm. Um, I think you, you only sympathise with her because she's a victim rather than because of who she is as a character, mm. which I think is, a, is, I hate to use the word failing, but I think it's, it's a, a flaw. Yeah, well, I agree. I feel, well, it's actually, it's really interesting that you bring up, we use the word victim, because well, that's what is what she is. Mm. But I think in Kubrick's films, and maybe I touched on this earlier, I can't remember, is that the um, he does, his his lens as a director and as a storyteller, he does have a tendency to, to side 
in yeah, in terms of you know what his the, who he focuses on with the with the victims, he he his sympathy is always with the victims. His conflicts in his films are always between virility and frailty. I mean, in like, and it's in no more so than in The Shining. I mean, The Shining, the character of Jack Torrance, who you know, he's because as a director, he's, he's somebody who distrusts power. And Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining is a figure all about power. He's all about seizing power in the family, the unit of the three of them: the kid, the mum, and the dad. He's all about he's he's the father figure. He's the patriarch. He's the most he's supposed to be the the powerful yeah, figure. The- the, you know, the linchpin in that trio and you know and the film is all about showing how evil he is and how crazy he is and how unhinged and comical he is and 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 you know and it's a, he's a figure of satire essentially as is as are the, you know the the government the, the political figures in clockwork orange or um or the the generals in dr strange love they're all being satirized for their mm. power and the vit and the focus is on the victims it's focuses on you know, Alex DeLarge in Clockwork Orange, the second half where he becomes the victim of power when he gets treated for the Ludovico technique. It's, the focus is on Shelley Duvall in The Shining because she's the victim. And um, so the sympathy, I think, with Kubrick is that he, is, he always does side with, you know, the victims over the villains. And um, yeah, I think, so I, and I think that's something mm. that, that people don't talk, talk about enough. Is that you know he does he, his characters aren't always and and the thing about The Shining the Jack Torrance character is that for me the film is just a a, a portrayal of what an abject failure he is he's a failure as a father he's a failure as a husband and he he's ultimately a failure at being a killer you know because yeah. the ending of The Shining not to spoil it but you know he you know it's it, it not to spoil it but I'm gonna anyway yeah, no, 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 I'm not gonna <laughs> say it, but like he's a he's a fail he fails on all fronts yeah and he ends up you know uh, there's a, a price to pay for that. You know, and like he doesn't even he doesn't even live up to you know when he says you know if I was to fail to live up to my responsibilities you know he's doing that and it's just like yeah he doesn't he doesn't live up to his responsibilities no and, yeah you know it's all about that's why I always took away from the shining maybe most pertinently was the fact that he is a failure as a character because he's a figure of power I think Kubrick distrusts him in mm. that sense which makes sense I just I find that his uh, making characters just victims and not adding anything to it they're just victims for victim's sake almost mm. um i find a little bit reductive um mm-hmm. but going away from that to the fact that um as such yeah i i said that a bit uh what's the word over the toply i, I exaggerated <laughs> a little bit and said that you think the shining is the worst film but uh, you you mentioned it is the it's the one that you least like or is it what well, well yeah because what i said yeah because what i said was that I do think it is one of his lesser films mm. because I think he made it not necessarily with less technical conviction because it has some brilliant technical technical aspects to it. The steady cam work is amazing, you know, and it's just, and it's a beautiful film to look at. Yeah, you, know, you can watch it and you can just watch it. Like watching it on a big screen was, was great. Incredible. Wallpaper is <laughs> that's actually quite a good way of describing it. I mean, I know that's heresy in some people's eyes, but just hear the banging on the doors as people come out with me at, with axes and I have to get chased into a maze. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I mean, but it's it's the one I no, I think I do enjoy, I do like it. I do like there are things in it that I like. I think overall it is fundamentally on some level kind of flawed. I think or, or misguided. I think I think it's um it, the approach that he takes to the material is misguided. And it's strange how like cause I've read I, I've read the book and I really like the book. I think it's the first Stephen King book where King really started to come into his own as a writer. It's his third book, and um and I think it's weird how you can take the basic skeleton of that book because the the film in some ways is completely identical to the book it's got the same characters same setting same sort of 
that but then in every other respect it you know from the from the muscles and tendons and flesh above the skeleton onwards it's completely a different beast and it's like it's weird how a film can be such a faithful adaptation yet com- so completely unfaithful at the same time mm. you know it's um so it's one that i i admire the le- maybe admire the least i admire okay. other, other films of his more like eyes wide shut which I think, which a lot mm. of people derided when it came out, and I think still some people misunderstand it. Although a lot of people, I've talked to loads of people recently that we know, you know yes. colleagues of ours, and a lot of people say it's their favourite, and I really like it. I thought I think it's his best film after Barry Lyndon. So but would you, when you're saying like sort of um, the reason why you admire The Shining the least is due to sort of how it adapts in a way Stephen King's book? Do you think that's a reason why you, maybe you'd put something like Lolita higher? Well, oh. I'll make, I have a confession to make here. I actually haven't seen or read Lolita. It's uh, I, I haven't. That's one of the few ones I haven't seen. Yeah, and, uh, but although I, but heard, which would be understandable. It's not really talked about. It's kind of his no. forgotten film as such. No, although it is Lynch's favorite Kubrick film, which mm. is interesting. Um, that says so much about Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right about that. Um, so it isn't like in terms of well, I mean, all of his films are adaptations mm. of books, and I think well, I mean, like, I, and some of them are better. I mean, like, mm. as adaptations, I think. I mean, Clockwork Courage for me is one of the best adaptations to film of all time, and mm. I think it actually improves several things on the book because I think any other director would look at the book and just think, how in the hell are you going to make this into a film? Like, and he's the, like, like gloves off, <laughs> <it's> like <laughs> hold my good. beer, like hold hold <laughs> my glass of Malacco Plus, yeah, <laughs> and literally like proceeds to like make it so cinematic and it, and it works mm. so well. I mean, I do think Clockwork Orange, if not his best film, is maybe his qu- the quintessential one because it's got all that stuff we've talked about about victims, about villains, about the, the black humor, the, fr- the directing, of course, the distrust of power, all the themes of Kubrick, and also it's interesting that. Alex, the protagonist, who I think, and Michael McDowell, who I think gives maybe the best performance because we talk again mm. and again about the acting. I think he his performance is one of the few where, where I would just absolutely say, look, it is over the top, but it is also nuanced. Yes. And um, and I think that's McDowell doing that. I don't think people always, I think people do sometimes set too much store by Kubrick. And I do think the actors need more credit. I think McDowell, when you're watching Clockwork Orange, that's McDowell doing all that stuff. It's not Kubrick. You know, Kubrick is framing it and directing it and shaping it, but he's not doing it. It's, it's McDowell. And um, and it's interesting how Alex, go, at the start, goes from a, vi- a, vi- a figure of power. You know, he goes from being, you know, he inflicts pain and dis- and damage on the people he abuses. And then in the second half of the film, he becomes the victim. It's interesting because he is almost like that quintessential Kubrickian protagonist of like, he starts off the vi- villain and then he becomes the victim. And so that's why people have such a strange connection with that film because emotionally it, twi- it puts you through the ringer because like, uh, no, there are points when like you really, your heart goes out to him. Like when he goes home and like he, his room's been taken by mm. a lodger and like they basically, you know, the lodger, you know, says, you know, basically essentially he walks out, he essentially gets thrown out of his own home your heart goes out to him at that point. Yeah, and like, but you don't almost, you're almost thinking like, why am I like feeling such sympathy for such, what I thought was such a monster. Mm. And I mean, that's a brilliant feat of, you know, filmmaking and acting is that, you know, so that you can, you can feel so many different conflicting emotions that up until the final minute with the credits and, you know, yeah. Hmm. I've gone on a bit there. That was, no, no, no. A- it's, it's just interesting. Yeah. Cause I suppose like clockwork one orange, I think if we're, if we're going to conclude, Mm. This point, I think Clockwork Orange is probably the one that not I can't say enjoyed the most, but I connected with the most. Yeah. So I suppose after all we've said, that's the reason. I suppose why, because in that there is such an effort to not necessarily make you sympathise, but empathise with Alex's plight as mm. such, and not agree with his actions or anything he's done, but you still get a sense of 
him as a as a person as if he was a real life figure. So I suppose in that way we can agree to disagree that <laughs> we both enjoy Clockwork Orange, <laughs> which says maybe we might say a bit about this. But <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, I, I think yeah, I mean, I think it's it maybe is his emotion, most emotional film, but the emotion in it is not emotion that mm. is particularly positive. He's never about happy. He never makes films about happy happiness or you know birds and sunshine. He makes films about frailty and about uh, folly. And uh, and you know that they're, they're great films for that, but yeah, you don't you don't go to Kubrick's film back catalog to feel better about things. <laughs> you yeah. go to it to feel to have your brain stimulated, I suppose, or or you know you go there to a uh, for you know other things. Going on from that and sort of the Clockwork Orange as a whole, and um, obviously Clockwork Orange, we've talked about it quite a bit, and it's been re-released mm. um, very recently. But Billy, I, I I throw down the gauntlet to you right now is. Um, I want you to pitch to me a sequel for Clockwork Orange, which I know is a very, very hard thing. And we're going into very big spoiler territory, but I feel like I, I, I want to see what would you do if, if Kubrick suddenly miraculously appeared to us today um, and was like, right, let's let's do this. Let's make a Clockwork <laughs> Orange sequel. Um, what would you what would you be doing? What would what would be your ultimate Clockwork Orange sequel? That's interesting. I think um, it would be really cool to see. Well, because like the film presents you, the ending of the film presents you with such like a a solid sort of character to jump off of. He's pretty much because he's he's you know he, he well spoiler alert he doesn't die at the end. So yeah, you've got a living character. Um, I think it'll be really interesting. I think if there was a sequel to to Clockwork Orange. That would be really cool. I think it would be like you. What it'd be interesting to take place like ten or twenty, or maybe even thirty years in the future. So like you're in the you're in the twenty first century now, and the future is even more of a strange place, even more baroque and even more dangerous. And um, Alex is sort of like the heart and soul of that future. Like you know, because he's been given at the uh, you know position of power. He's back to that position of power from victimhood to villainhood, villainy. And um he, you know, he he can basically use and abuse whoever he wants. And it'd be interesting almost to do like a a gangster number 1 film, which is a thing, which is also another Malcolm McDowell film mm. where he plays an older gangster in you know, and then Paul Bettany plays his younger self who's more out of control, more violent, and then he becomes he rises up the ranks and becomes gangster number 1. It'd be mm. interesting to do that with well, do that with Clockwork Orange. Yeah, what was you? Thirty years later, you see him in his youth, and now you see him in his old age. McDowell could come back for this, you know, in his in his seventies. Mm. He could come back to this and play Alex Delarge as a seventy-year-old, and you know, who's secure, stable, who you know, who uh, no longer he he has, he, um, he no longer um, indulges in sort of the the ultra violence on the street mm. that he manipulates, and he has his own sort of like cronies that he uses. Okay. You know, that would be quite interesting to see, and it yeah. could be a, like a a, a takedown of a more sort of like formal takedown of you know politics and mm. that kind of thing. It'd be interesting to see him thirty or forty years onwards. Yeah, w- would it be interesting to see almost like a, a sense of what happens with newer sort of like him almost in that way that the generational gap kind of occurs that he's looking down at the new groups that are appearing and having sort of different new types of gangs and him sort of being like, oh, it was better in my day. We had a sense of class as such, like maybe the the, <laughs> yeah, the Baroque atmosphere is eroded down in sort of these younger, newer gangs and they're just mm. violent. There's no kind of is sense it? of theatrica that 
theatricality even mm. that he brought to it with like the old Ludwig van yeah. stuff like they so don't listen to Beethoven these sets guys. up a gang war between the old and the new is such mm. mm. or maybe it should be like a healing experience maybe she's like oh mm. I should take these guys in and, and teach them but then at the same time this is Alex was talking about so he probably wouldn't be yeah I think that. that that sounds more like the uh, sequel to Magic Mike <laughs> that's Magic Mike <laughs> XXL <laughs> Alex and the Droogs go on the road oh <laughs> for one last reunion tour like that would be kind of interesting yeah, you know, a road tri- a road movie with the Droogs. <laughs> I'd be like Magical Mystery Tour, but with the Droogs. Yeah, a lot more terrifying. The I Beatles feel. as the Droogs. Oh my God, why didn't we do that? Why did the Beatles waste time pitching Lord of the Rings to Kubrick when they should have pitched <laughs> Clockwork Orange? You, go like, you know, Lennon could be McDowell, it'd be um, the Alex. No, it'd obviously be Ringo. Ringo, <laughs> Ringo would be there. No, <laughs> just like we, some drumsticks. Ringo is. It would probably. I mean, who would Ringo play? Like either Dim or uh, Pete. Mm. Probably be the two ones, yeah, the quiet one or the, uh, you know, the object of. I don't know. Ringo's got blood in his eyes recently. <laughs> <laughs> He's an angry man. <laughs> so, uh, big question is, what would you call it? Well, you know, there was a. Um, I, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but um, somebody at the in at the Burgess in the Anthony Burgess who mm. wrote the original book uh, in in his um, sort of connected to the to the sort of the trust or the household or whatever, did discover a manuscript for a sequel, a light Ooh. sequel to Clockwork Orange. I don't know if you heard about this, no, but no, I didn't. it's called A Clockwork Condition. And basically it was written as a response to the fact that when Kub- when Kubrick's film of Clockwork Orange came out in 71, it was, you know, he banned it essentially he, after its first run because of the death threats he was getting. And so the Bur- Burgess wrote this um, th- this piece, a sort of a kind of sequel to it, where which was sort of a response to that. And it was about, you know, about youth conditioning and it was about yeah it's more for more of like a, a documentary kind of like or, mm. or a, a factual uh perspective rather than a uh like a, he was he wasn't writing fiction with it so that you know maybe a clockwork conditions quite a good title uh, but basically so yeah uh, maybe that, 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 stay with that yeah. that could work i think clock rather than a clockwork a, pomegranate or something <laughs> like that. a clockwork passion fruit Do you know if it's, if it's the 21st century it'd be yeah, a clockwork avocado <laughs> and alex is a vegan it's all about vegans yeah. that'd be interesting hey he wouldn't be able to drink his milk so no just, is that oh god that's that should be like the main thing of the film is like that's all, how all he kicks the youths yeah. don't drink milk anymore what is they it drink oat like? milk <laughs> Back in my day, it was all fields around here. Exactly, <laughs> just like just them fighting the giant milk war. <laughs> <Like, laughs> Why well, am I getting images of like the Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters mm. involved in this? Hey, that'd be. I mean, speaking of like that'd be an interesting. Like, I'd, I'd quite be interested to see that. Like, I suppose like if you've got like if you did like that old versus new, you'd have the Baroque kind of droogs, and then you've got these newer one newer gangs, which are just as violent and don't have that theatricality, but like are vegan. Mm. And sort of have come from sort of so like almost like what happens when the liberal unit, t- the young liberal turn as such, mm. and against his sort of more authoritarian kind of uh, right wing, yeah, so setting up some more political. Oh, it's meaty. So we've got some uh, st- stuff to go on here. Yeah, that's it. We're gonna go write the sequel right, now. right about now. I mean. It's interesting though that like, if you look at the films that Clockwork Orange has influenced, that you know you kind of can see the descendants, like the, the the next generation of young sort of violent filmmakers coming up. I mean, like George Miller, who did the Mac Max movies. Mm. You know, he you know, he said that he could he he when he 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 could recall any frame of Clockwork Orange when he was you know when he was a young filmmaker. You know, it was one of his main sources of inspiration when he was doing like you know Mad Max, and you can definitely see that sort of like unerring ability to sort of generate. A, little, a bit of controversy and you know through yeah. shocking violence through especially with the road warrior you know and also you can see like you know the punk aesthetic of the you know the uh, the, ch- the leather chaps and the uh, the mohawks and the makeup and that kind of stuff you know it mm. you know it has a direct line to 
things like Clockwork Orange, which are you know, youth, youthful violence. So get George Miller in to do a Clockwork Condition then is the, is the big thing. That would be interesting. Yeah. George Miller needs to make more films, to be honest, because you know, uh, he's such <laughs> I a I mean, the last director. one took him 10 years, so I suppose. 15 years, <laughs> yeah, yeah. give him a bit of a break. And he did make Happy Feet and Happy Feet too. So and and so. Babe too, as well. And Babe too, so there's something yeah. to thank him for. And The Witches of Eastwick. <laughs> now we're just naming George Miller films. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 another another that's another episode entirely. So that's all that we've got time for on this week's edition of Now in Cinemascope. Um, so Kubrick, to conclude, influential, emotional in Billy's opinion, and also highly problematic, but someone it's good to have in the cinema industry, whatever, just for the debate it causes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can't argue with that whatsoever. So I've been oh, Joe. I've been Billy. And uh, this was Now in, in Cinemascope. Cinemascope. Thanks for listening. <laughs>